training principles are training principles, but you know, whether it's the, the male or female player. And I think, you know, both Jacks there have given examples of, of what they do. And I don't think, you know, that would be that dissimilar if that's working in the in the men's game. Um, I think for me, a lot of the some of the challenges for the women's game and, and the strategies come with obviously our context we're talking a lot about at the moment is that the very elite level of the female game. So WSL, international football. I think some of the challenges of applying some of the other strategies, potentially in the women's game at times, is not about physiology, it's about the context and resource. Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast, the podcast that dives into the philosophies, ideas and practices of some of the best practitioners in high-performance sport. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is all about working in women's football. So this is on the back of the World Cup, which happened last month and was an incredible event, incredible advert for the sport. But in this episode, we have Stacey Emmons from Leeds Beckett University, Jack Sharkey, from the Matildas, who were heavily involved in and got to the semi-final of the World Cup, and Jack Clover from Manchester United Women. So in this episode, we have a little chat around injury prevention, how training techniques from an injury perspective and a performance perspective differ from men to women, and if there is any difference at all. We have a little chat around menstrual cycle tracking, phase-based training, and then some information on game demands. So how does the game actually differ for women than it does for men? So accelerations, decelerations, total distance, high-speed running, that type of thing. And then how we can actually program off the back of that, knowing that information. So some really interesting discussions in this episode, which I'm sure you'll enjoy. This episode of the Pace of Performance podcast is sponsored by Team Builder. Team Builder is a software for performance coaches around the world. The powerhouse platform increases efficiency, saves paper, and can handle any type of programming. It's the perfect fit for professional and academy teams, performance institutes, schools, and universities. Team Builder is full of tools that help coaches' needs. Multiple max tracking methods, 16 plus reports, evaluation testing, and goal setting, just to name a few. Coaches also have access to consultations with Team Builder's in-house sports scientist to help manage and analyze data. Head to teambuilder.com and sign up with promo code SPORTSMITH to start your 30-day free trial. So without further ado, over to the episode with Jack, Jack and Stacey. So no intros, we're going to come straight to Stacey. Thank you very much, Stacey, for, for coming. I told you this would happen six months ago, didn't I? Promised you. <laughs> we finally got here. Promised yeah. you. We finally got here. So differences, similarities between men's and the women's game. So to set the scene, what are the demands of women's football at the, at the highest level? And how does that differ to what we know about men's football? Yeah, no, that's a good question. I think it's quite a common question that always comes when we start talking about the women's game. I think fundamentally the game is the game. So I think whether it's, you know, men's football, women's football, um, the demands are quite similar. So we know now, you know, the, the highest level when we look at total distance and those kind of metrics that they're very similar. I think where the differences have been is obviously more of those high speed thresholds and high intensity actions. Um, but again, that's probably been a lot down to as well the velocity boundaries used. So a lot of the times the same velocity boundaries have been used for the men's and women's game. And of course, then if you start to compare the two, there's going to be differences with differences in physical qualities of female players versus males in terms of sort of max velocity and the ability to 
sort of achieve some of those top top speeds. So I think once we make it relative and start using female specific thresholds, which I think are starting to become more common in the literature now. And then if you start to look at the relative percentage distance covered in each of those boundaries, then there actually isn't too much differences between the men's and women's games. Um, it's more about actually sort of the application of those thresholds. And then obviously we, we know the demands of the women's games going up um, with that increased professionalism um, in, in, and the capabilities of players. So um, even if you just look at the sort of the previous two World Cups, knowing that sort of high intensity running and high intensity actions sort of have, have increased by... Uh, I don't know the exact number, but definitely more than 20% from those two competitions. And I'm probably going to see that go up again this summer. So I think overall there isn't too many differences, but it's about the application of those appropriate high speed running thresholds to really actually, you know, make sure I'm monitoring female players um, appropriately, really. I might be stitching you up here, Stace, but I don't want to go into the numbers and, and keep it going and like list, list everything. But in terms of threshold, the, the key, like high speed running, for example, would you recommend, what, what would you recommend for those working female in, in women's football versus men's? Yeah, I think from some of the work we've done and then I think some of the work like Dawn Scott's done, the group she's worked with, I think sort of looking more sort of around sort of 19 kilometres an hour for sort of high speed running and then sort of 22 we've gone with for sort of um, like um, sprinting. I think there's probably more work to be done to probably like put out universal kind of thresholds to suggest everybody should use those. But um, sort of slightly adjusting some of those classifications um, and, and reducing them slightly would be kind of recommended. Um, obviously, we, the professionalism in the game increases, players are more athletic, then that might need adjusting again. And I think it's not just those high speed thresholds, it's around those sort of acceleration, deceleration thresholds as well. And there's probably a lot more work to be done in that area still before we can kind of be confident in prescribing specific thresholds. Sharky, I'm going to come to you unannounced and just ask you, because obviously you were deep in the, this kind of thing uh, on the men's side. How have you found that yeah. transition and what have you changed on this front thresholds and understanding the demands in the women's game? Yeah, it, it's been actually quite fascinating and something I wasn't really expecting when I made that transition from men's into the women's game. So in the men's environment, anyone works in men's football, you know the threshold's off by heart. You know that it's nine, it was 19.8 kilometers an hour high speed running, and then very very high speed running was 25.2. And then when Second Spectrum came in with the Premier League, they standardized it to just round it up to 20 and 25 kilometers an hour. And the, there was no real discussion around those thresholds being adopted by everyone, but they were just part and parcel of everyone's work and practice. You could go to any club and they were the standards. They were the thresholds that were used. And then you had the argument of how much you do relative thresholds to absolute and, and that's another discussion but transferring to the women's game is bizarre to see that there's actually not that standardization you've had some people who adjust those thresholds because they feel that they need to because it's a female athlete you've got some that have kept thresholds from from the men's side and being with a national team you actually obviously have to communicate with a number of different clubs and a lot of different nations um, and every single one's different there is no standardization. You've got some using 15 and 21. You've got some using 18 and 23. Like you said, um, uh, Stace with Dawn Scott's work, I think that was 19 and 23 kilometers an hour. We, we, you, we use something different. And if we're going to make any progress in the women's game and, and understanding how we can share and collaborate and work uh, as within the women's game, that threshold needs to be standardized um, across, across the board. Because like I said, the variety is, is insane, really. Um, 
obviously you can adjust it say if you're using stat sports honor you can exchange input it into your system and readjust the threshold is exactly the same as you can do with catapult but um i think there should be when it comes to absolute speed threshold some form of standardization and, and people coming together saying this is what we do whether it is based off the the physical reports that fifa did around the world cup potentially um but that is something for me that doesn't need addressing Stacey, oh, go, mate. Jack, you're in. No, all I was going to say is completely agree with both points. And I think um, definitely room for a little bit more research in that area about where those thresholds should sit. Um, just from, from a club point of view, actually, I, I, I sympathise with you, Sharky, because uh, obviously we get all the reports back from international teams with different thresholds and we have to unpick that data. So the other way around. Um, but yeah, just from our point of view, because we because the literature is quite um, kind of undecided around where those thresholds should sit, the way we actually did it at my club was we set the thresholds as they are, but then we make those thresholds relative based on what the player does um, in each of our sessions in the week. So like our G minus one, G minus two, G minus four, et cetera. Um, so the threshold always sits the same as that absolute value. And then we look at, um, we look at a comparison of session to session compared to what they do on average in that, if that makes sense. Um, so that's kind of a slightly different way of doing it. And then we look at all our max velocities obviously relative to a percentage of, of all that we can do. Um, so yeah, it's another way of looking at it, but I completely agree with the standardization um, in a way to kind of standardize across the men's would be really beneficial. I think yeah. on that, yeah, just to add to what Jack said there, I think as well, it's it's about how you apply those. So I think if you this is high speed running, this is sprinting, then I was even more have that right. The other way, I guess, if, if why is this is probably just to look at like certain velocities is, is another way of doing it. If it's difficult to you know, be confident in saying this is high speed running, this is sprinting, then, you know, that that's another way we've tried to do it is if we're looking from youth up to senior and trying to look at that transition is just the ability of players to cover distance above a certain threshold, um, but not putting a descriptor to, to necessarily say that's high speed running or sprinting. So who's to, to, to standardise this, Stace? Is, does that cause a problem for you in terms of research when you're looking at collaborations between... FA and uh, Premier League teams and who should be the guidance when it comes to trying to pull all that together? I think that's, that's, that's a good question. Um, I think obviously with the work we do, we always try and lean on whoever that organisation is, if it's the FA or a specific club, obviously the goal is to try and answer some performance questions for them, so align with what they're using. But I think probably you know, that's probably, if we're going to influence the whole of the women's game and, and try and put something in place, that's probably got to come from, I think, even higher. So that's probably a, a FIFA question, which I know there's a lot of good work going on at FIFA and a lot of work in the women's game, and a lot of projects ongoing. So I think probably it is on the agenda, but I think it's just probably tackling some of those other topics first at the moment. Are you involved with the FIFA stuff, Stace? Uh, yeah, we, along with Jack, yeah, involved yeah. in some of the sort of the coach mentorship program. So yeah, there's a lot of great work going on at FIFA to to support the women's game. But obviously, there's a there's only a certain amount of resource, and you've got to sort of pick and choose, I guess, what, where's the best places to invest that. So um, I'm sure looking to try and come out with some consensus statement or something on kind of the 
you know the appropriate threshold and things will be on the agenda um it's just not there yet cool right let's move on back to you sharky and i know we've touched on this a little bit already but differences between the men's and women's game obviously you've been involved at villa and burton and various different other places so i think it's fascinating for me after all them years transitioning to the women's game and just getting your view of things yeah um yeah it has been quite interesting um making that transition to the women's game and look i'll always have my experience from the men's game and i'll always look back and compare to that environment rightly or wrongly so and see how our data corresponds to what we're doing in the men's environment um, so going back to what Stacey mentioned before about the the physiological well the physical difference between men and women, um, I did a bit of just play around with the numbers in terms of what we do as a national team and how that would relate to the Premier League um, and their standings a couple of seasons ago. And if you look at total distance, we'd be in in the top fifteen of the Premier League for for total distance. If you looked at our average match output compared to the Premier League, so when it, when you talk about total difference, there's there's no difference whatsoever what the female athletes can do compared to men um but certainly when you start to look at those higher speed thresholds the high speed running the sprint distances that sort of things that's when you start to get a, a slight bit of difference and certainly the maximum velocity um but then even with individual athlete athletes there's there are outliers within your averages that are equated or equivalent to what the men are doing as well we have players that exceed 33 kilometers an hour we have players doing counter movement jumps above 50 centimetres, for instance, just like an example, which going back to when I was in the men's environment in, in the Premier League, they'd be good scores. They're beating some of the men. So it's, um, yeah, there is a, lot, a bit of a crossover and it's not as distinctive between male and female athletes as people probably probably assume. Um, and then going to the, the differences of working in a male environment to a female environment, like they said, the game's the game. Like, there's not too much you need to 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 do differently when you, you're talking about physical preparation of athletes for for the demands of the game. The process is still exactly the same. The 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 objectives of getting the players to to execute the 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 game plan of the head coach is exactly the same. Um, the only thing I'd say is slightly different is the way that you communicate with these players and the openness around conversations. Um, Typically, if a player questions you in a men's environment, it's usually a dig. It's usually like, why are we doing this? What is the reason behind this? Is in basically, I don't want to do this. I want to go home. But in the in the women's environment that I'm in, they would genuinely just be intrigued. They want to know. They want to better themselves. Um, whether that's the difference between men and women, I'm not sure. Or whether it's a cultural thing, because obviously I've transitioned from a club environment to a national team. And I understand that when players come into a national team, they're with us for 10 days. You probably see them in a completely different light, light to what Jack's seeing them at, at Man United for, for every day of a season. So that might be player reason behind why they're so attentive and positive during those 10 days as well. That, I'm guessing that that change surprised you in terms of the, the questioning. And I, I, I had a very similar experience, not in football, but in another sport. And I was quite taken aback because it was, I came from a football environment and you used to tell them and they used to like it or not. And if they didn't, they'd tell you. But it was very much, Rob, why are we doing this? Like, can you, can you explain? So that, that rings true that it, it does feel like maybe it is a, a you know, an a intrigue, with differences in intrigue of what we're doing and education or that kind of thing between, a, you know, men and women. Yeah, and it's kept me on my toes. Like you've got to have the answers. You've got to be prepared for any question they throw at you to understand what what 
uh, what you're doing. And these players aren't stupid. They can read you very quickly. If they think you're a bit of a cowboy or, you, or you're blagging it, they'll know. They'll know exactly. And uh, that's what they make their opinion of. So, yeah, they do, they do ask a lot of questions. But it's, it's refreshing, really, to have an environment where athletes are proactively wanting to better themselves and understand the reasoning and rationale behind what they're doing. Um, and it's it's daft really because when you're first starting out on this career you expect all athletes to be like that but the reality is certainly in the men's men's football it's not always that case there's some players who literally will say to me just tell me what to do and I'll do it and give it no further thought process so it is refreshing to be like I said in an environment where athletes are proactively engaged with what you're explaining for them to do on the pitch in the gym uh, from a nutritional perspective they they genuinely are interested which is good. Jack, just to bring you into this conversation, I know you haven't maybe made the transition from the men's game to the women's game, but you're a man working women's sport. And that's not to say that this conversation couldn't go the other way. Um, but I'm just interested to see when you worked, started to work in women's football, what how that was like for you. Because I'm guessing at uni, maybe you did work experience. It was probably with guys, I'm guessing. Yeah, I mean, probably kind of slightly different background in terms of the, the vast majority of my um my experience has actually been in female female sport and even prior to working in football I, I worked with a lot of female athletes at, at university and um I did work a little bit in male professional sport worked in male professional cricket um but yeah I think I, I, I'd echo some of those sort of sentiments around um around athletes definitely maybe having a little bit more interest in in um why why they're doing what they're doing um like personally, I'd see that as as a positive thing. Um, I certainly enjoy talking about physical performance in SNC. So if, if players want to discuss it, sometimes maybe they slightly regret asking too many questions because I'll give them very kind of long winded answers. But um, but yeah, so not I haven't got as much of a of a comparison really. Um, but yeah, definitely noticed some of the same same points as as Sharky did. Perfect. I mean, yeah. I've probably gone the other way, obviously being female, probably spent more time, I'm probably starting to even out now, but uh, six years in the boys game before actually moving into into the women's game and could probably agree with everything Sharky said there if I actually, you know, found, found that transition. And I think probably there's, there's research that supports some of that is actually just in the different psychological profiles of, of men and women in general. Um, but I think probably some of it is still probably where we are in the women's game as well. And there is that sort of, I think girls haven't had as much resource coming through and it hasn't been always there for them. And maybe they've had to kind of adopt a mentality of actually becoming more educated and, and independent to manage some of their own kind of, of training as well, which has sort of um, created some of that enthusiasm for actually understanding the why behind. And I think that's something to really, like, as Jack said, take as a positive and ensure that for the, the new generation of young female players that are coming through who are going to get that same resource that, some of the you know the boys get now that we we don't lose that and we still continue to try and educate them and I think trying to make sure we create as much as possible you know educated and, and independent female players as well. I know this is about the women's game Stace but I want to stick on that because I've not spoke to any girls who have been well up until last couple of years I guess predominantly working with the boys how what, what was that like for you and there's a there's a whole different roundtable discussion about you know why there's not more female practitioners not only in men's again men's game but the women's game as well but what was that like for you as a girl going into the guys 
yeah I think probably as a first like going in the door was quite like a daunting experience I think probably the, t the time obviously is quite a few years ago when I was making that step and the game probably moved moved on but that was yeah I was kind of the the only female I was aware of at the time kind of really doing that in boys academy um so really grateful I guess to, it was Leeds United giving me that opportunity but from a player perspective no difference I think there's a bit of a it was a bit of a taboo maybe at the time around our females in those kind of contexts but you know I had a great time at the club like really positive experiences with whether that was academy players or whether that was senior players um so I think there's just um you know maybe some taboo that were kind of built up around that that actually once you get into those contexts the same as you know footballers a footballer male or female you know if it's a practitioner and and they're in that context doing that role it it doesn't really matter whether they're male or female if they they know what they're doing I think cool we're going to come to Jack in a minute around injury prevention strategies but just going to stick with you Stace very very quickly is there in when it, we look at the women's game there seems to be a big focus around injury prevention injuries like the hot that whole side of the kind of spectrum versus the performance enhancement side and we'll get onto them um later on as well but is that where's that driven from and is that is academia a little bit guilty of that as well yeah i think this, that could be a whole uh whole podcast Again, um, <laughs> I, think, I think it's both i think it's academia it's practice um as well with that i think Again, there has been this mentality still around whether it's, you know, technical coaches and how they speak to female players or actually how much we then physically push them. You know, previously, again, there's been this thing of almost we'll be a little bit softer with, with girls. And I think some of that, you know, relates to training and they haven't sort of, not just that they haven't had the resource and the exposure, but the, we maybe just haven't trained some of the female sort of, you know, not in terms of volume, but the appropriate intensities at, at times. And I think there's always this focus on, you know, injury and that females have more risk of ACL injuries and all those kind of things. And, and of course, there's a lot of research that is needed in terms of risk factors and mechanisms and, and really understanding that. But I think probably some of the higher prevalence we're starting to see is, is probably multiple factors. So increased exposure for, for female players and, and greater awareness around those things occurring. But then we also have, you know, with increased professionals and exposure, we've got more increased fixture congestion, travel with more international competitions and, and all those things. And, and the training age of even senior players, if, and if we put training age in the context of how many years they've been in a sort of structured training environment where they have SNC and all the surrounding other MDT support, is still, you know, they have a low training age compared to their male counterparts at that level. And, and potentially it's all those, those different factors that kind of relate to you know what we see in terms of the injuries so I think yes we need to understand the injury rates and you know we need to reduce injuries of course we do but I think some of that is actually rather than being reactive and looking at the consequence of not preparing players adequately like we also need to ensure that the the research and focus is on how we best prepare female players as well. Perfect thanks Dace. Jack let's get you in and talk about your particular club how you go about preventing trying your best to prevent these injuries yeah i mean i think i think you hit, hit the nail on the head rob um with your last question around um obviously injury is a big topic at the moment particularly in female football um and your question around performance versus versus injury prevention i think 
at my club at Man United, we tend to think of it more around building a robust athlete and improving performance. And the byproduct of that is is a lower injury rate. Um, obviously, the injury profiles look a little bit different in in male and women's um, men's and women's football. Um, maybe a, a higher prevalence of sort of structural um, joint related injuries in female football, um, tendon and ligament injuries, rather than the soft tissue injuries you tend to see in in the men's game. Um, from our point of view, we we obviously are, are lucky in terms of we get a lot of time with the players um, compared to to international teams. Um, so we tend to look at the kind of three pillars of profiling, screening and monitoring our players. Profiling being that sort of bigger um, data collection at the start of the season, all our baseline data. And that's what we use to kind of build the bulk of our programs in terms of the individual strengths and weaknesses of players. Um, all of our movement screens, ACL screens will come into that as well. And then we screen our players more of like a weekly or after a game, whenever that falls. And that informs our loading for that week and whether we need to modify players or how we adjust their weeks. And then I guess our monitoring, that's our uh, wellness questionnaires, our menstrual cycle monitoring, um, obviously your typical external internal load, GPS heart rate. And I guess that's sort of, um, that's kind of how we assess the efficacy of our program and whether we're hitting the goals we want to hit with each individual and whether we need to adjust kind of week to week. So that's kind of our starting point. Um, and then I guess we're fairly typical in terms of um, majority of, of football teams in how we periodize different physical qualities on different days of the week. Um, I touched on earlier how we do that around GPS, but um, we try and make that the entire day sort of flow towards the goal for that day. So um, for example, on a G minus four, we might do an extensive prep in the gym with the individual work that players do every day. Um, then we'll go out on the pitch and we'll work on mechanics and technique of say sprinting and then um, we'll hit those those kind of typical 90% uh, max velocity uh, we'll try and do that twice within a week once in the training week once at a game um, we'll hit a high speed running volume on that day and then we'll go back into the gym and work on the sort of strength underpinnings of that and that's kind of how that day works. And then we'll have another day more focused around deceleration, another day more focused around acceleration, maybe change the direction. And so that's how we kind of build out the week. And then I suppose the kind of hot topic in women's football would be ACL, because that's our biggest sort of um, injury burden, time off feet for players. Players can be out for nine months, up to a year, even longer. Um, so I guess we try and, I mean, I certainly don't have the answer for ACL prevention. I don't think at this stage anyone does, and it's very multifactorial. Um, there's definitely more research that needs doing in there. Um, we just try and focus a lot on uh, breaking under load in the gym. Um, we do a lot of landing work, multi-directional with perturbation, with distraction, uh, lots of variety, and we tend to level it. So some of our players might stick on like level one and level two until they're competent. So that might be a full season or a player might get to like a level five or six in a season um, in terms of complexity. Um, and then obviously we work on that on the pitch. We work on the technique of deceleration and change of direction. Um, and I think probably final point on that is that the strength qualities underpin all of that. Um, and and Stacey touched on before how um, because of, uh, because female football has been professional for less time, some of the players have a have a younger sort of uh, training age in terms of gym lifting. 
And a big part of our philosophy is that strength underpinning to all of these physical qualities. Um, so we do we do lift in the gym um, with good competency and, and regularly. Um, and when our schedule is kind of more demanding, we we just we kind of tick those boxes with micro doses of strength work throughout the week. Um, so I guess they're the kind of key pillars of our program. As I said, it's it's whether it's the right or wrong way to do it. Lots like I think there's more than one right way to do it. Mate, if you don't have the answers to the ACL issue, just jump on Twitter because there's plenty of people that do. <laughs> Especially this weekend. I think it was last weekend. I was just fascinating. So Jack, the, the maybe well, plenty of coaches out there who will have so Jack, so Sharky. Hell, this is confusing already. <laughs> Coming to you, Sharky. Yeah, there's plenty of people, coaches out there who will have limited time, as you do with the players. Yeah. Not many will have the, the level of athlete that you're working with, but they'll certainly have the limited time. So how do you attack the injury prevention side of things from uh, in, international players when time's limited? Um, so, so a big part for us is education. Um, like I said, we've got we've got players all across the world. We've got players in England, um, in WSL, I believe the best league in the world. Players in France, America, Sweden, Australia, and all these different clubs have different support staff as well and support structures. So our involvement with each one of those clubs will differ quite a lot. Um, so some of these clubs will actually, as a national team, prescribe the strength conditioning work and even GPS units and analysis for those individual players, depending on what environment they're in. Um, whereas other clubs, they've got the support that they need. So we don't really need to be too proactive with those individuals other than just communicating with the club. Um, but going back to your question, in terms of what the crucial aspect of that injury prevention aspect is, is training loads. Um, and obviously the, the strength and conditioning work that we do, make sure they've got a sound, solid uh, training program that they're following. Um, but it's it's not just on the athlete's development. I think we, as a whole industry, need to be more proactive in how we're managing these players to look at injury risks. So you look at the competition format and the, the training loads that these players are subjected to um, is crazy. It's ridiculous. So you take the last four years of, of the female game. If you're a high-level footballer, you've had a season then you've gone into the Tokyo Olympics during COVID with the additional stresses of that. Then you've got back, back into your competitive season with additional cup games as well with Champions League, League Cups, FA Cups. Um, then you go into the Euro straight away. You're competing all the way through the summer. Then you're into another competitive season. Then you're going over to Australia for the World Cup. Then you've got another competitive season. Then you've got the the um, the, uh, Tokyo, uh, the Paris Olympics as well in 2024. And prior to that intensive block a lot of these players have had to travel and, and play in different leagues to try and get some revenue and a, a living out of this uh, game as well so we've had players in the national team who've done a summer in one country then transferred during the off season to play in another country so playing the a-league in australia go over to europe play the rest of the season there and they're just constantly bouncing between the two um and all these, this plays a part in why we're getting significant injury injury rates as well, because these players haven't had the professional uh, training history as well to prepare them for these physical demands, which are becoming comparable um, in terms of fixed congest congestion with the men. Um, and for me, that's one of the primary functions uh, or reasons behind why we're seeing this increase in injury rates. It's, um, yeah, there's 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 management from a higher level that needs needs to be better. We're, we're talking about 
major international tournaments where players will go in and they'll play a game successively every three days. That doesn't happen in the men's environment. You don't have a game every three days in the men's environment. You give them adequate time to recover. Now, if you've got a team with no depth, how, how do you expect a player to play injury, like reduce the risk of a player getting injured every three days competitively for seven successive games to win a final? It's, you just, you just, it's just an accident waiting to happen. So these are, for me, fundamentally why things will happen. And that's why we can be proactive as a national team, whether that's not calling players into a national team, which we did uh, into a camp, which we did last year to, to save players, to give them a break because we knew they weren't in the Euros and we, we could give them an opportunity to rest. So we didn't call them in. And that was a big call on us. Um, also to try and mitigate the travel that these, these teams do as well. But this isn't, this is just our approach that the, the whole global approach to women's game needs to change for me. It needs to be structured differently. Yeah. Jack, jump in. Just, just to echo the point, really, because I think, um, I think if you're looking at international football specifically in the women's game, the women's Super League doesn't necessarily set players up for that kind of schedule, that kind of density, because uh, there's 12 teams in the league. Obviously, we have cup competitions as well, but it's very rare that that you won't play Sunday to Sunday or Saturday to Saturday or one game a week, and then they're going into an international tournament. Um, Obviously, the World Cup coming up this summer, the Olympics a couple of years ago was was horrendous for it um, and playing every two or three days. And, and I think when we talk about injury management and monitoring load, it's a novel load for players to do that in a lot of cases. Um, even, even the teams that do have, say, Champions League games have bigger squads and they'll rotate. Um, but it's definitely a novel stimulus for players to go um, to international tournaments. Um, and play that many games and then the way the set, schedule's set up they don't really have adequate time to then recover before they come back into club um, so it's definitely a huge challenge and I think it's definitely something that needs to be looked at in the future So we're just going to take a very quick break in the chat with Stacey, Jack and Jack Up to we have a little chat around injury prevention strategies and performance enhancement strategies and what the difference looks like if any between male and female footballers so really interesting part two coming up This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Hawking Dynamics. Hawking Dynamics is the world's first wireless force plate testing system. The Hawking Dynamics system is built for coaches to test in the real world, not just in the lab. Capture reliable data on all your athletes in a matter of minutes and monitor their progress in the cloud from anywhere in the world. The Hawking Dynamics force plates are wireless, portable and trusted by teams at every level of sport. Integrating force plates into your athlete monitoring program has never been easier or more affordable. If you want to see the Hawking Dynamics force plate system in action, head over to their website, hawkingdynamics.com, to schedule a demo or follow them on Twitter at Hawking Dynamics. And now back to the episode with Jack, Stacey, and Jack. Coming back to you, Stace, performance enhancement strategies. So we've got, should we have performance enhancement strategies? For women footballers and performance enhancement strategies for men's footballers or just performance enhancement strategies uh, yeah i think you probably know what my answer is going to be it's performance enhancement isn't it i think yeah. you know training principles are training principles but you yeah. know whether it's the, the male or female player and i think you know both jacks there have given examples of, of what they do and i don't think you know that would be that dissimilar if that's working in the in the men's game um i think for me a lot of the some of the challenges for the women's game and, and the strategies come with obviously 
our context we're talking a lot about at the moment is that the very elite level of the female game, so WSL, international football. I think some of the challenges of applying some of the other strategies, potentially in the women's game at times, is not about physiology, it's about the context and resource. So sometimes, you know, if you get outside of that very elite level within the female game, you might be in a context where a team has only got access to a field and they don't have any access to a gym or potentially they don't have the additional support staff around them. So it's more sometimes the context of the women's game and the resource that's there that actually may influence performance strategies, obviously, rather than sort of underpinning physiology. Is there any resources? It might be a good, good time to mention that. For those that maybe have limited staff or there's one-man bands who are doing everything and have limited facilities, any resources that you know of that coaches could go and seek out for, you know, cool things they can do with limited time and, and money? Yeah, I think because obviously the, the basics ones, if we take like injury prevention things, is obviously just looking at the, the FIFA 11 plus resources and those kind of things provide some examples for the, um, the strength ones, obviously, I know there's like the, the Perform Plus and those other resources have come out from, from Australia as well. So even just, you know, if it's a coach on their own, kind of trying to implement um, some of those. I think obviously social media used in the right ways, like things like Twitter, there's always like opportunities where people are sharing ideas and resources to get. I don't, to my knowledge, I don't think the guys do. There isn't really any obviously formal ones that I'm aware of to, to access those resources, which again is probably something that the likes of and a, a FIFA are putting together resources to give out to like national association coaches and they've got a whole female health um, program and developing resources for that but I think probably yeah you know the likes of FIFA UEFA sort of having platforms where they offer more resources um, may help the women's game as well. Cool thanks Dave. Just bringing Sharky in here using that contrast again performance enhancement strategies many nuances that you've kind of had to bring in when it comes to that side of things, moving from the men's game to the women's game, or again, like Stacey said, it's just performance enhancement. It makes no difference. Um, in terms of the way I work, my, my philosophy has stayed the same. Um, there are physical qualities that are pertinent to performance that I feel we need to to develop in, in players. Um, so um, aero capacity, acceleration, max velocity, and repeat sprintability. Um, creating an objective score for each one of those metrics and then working or assessing what areas that player needs to develop uh, based off their match demands and positional demands um, is still the same. There's that, that process in terms of athletic development hasn't really changed between male and female environments. Um, the only thing I would say is that obviously you've got you've got a slightly different approach in terms of menstrual health and and how nutrition differs slightly to working in male and female environments. But um, in terms of the the more general approach to physical development, it's, it, stays, it stays the same for me. <laughs> no, I'm joking. Jack, Jack, just coming on to you, anything these two have said that you don't agree with, just echoing points? Not at all, really. That yeah, uh, agree agree with everything. Um, on that side, I think, um, I think the principles are, are going to be the same, definitely. And and I think, um, as I said, there's lots of different ways of, of approaching these things. That for me, I think, as long as you've got your clear structure of your program, um, whether that be camp based international football or if it's club based, kind of week to week, day to day, um, hitting your key principles, 
Um, and I suppose having strong buy-in from your coaching team, strong buy-in from your players, so they're aware they need to be doing those things. And then obviously that um, that potentially helps as well when they when they go to international tournaments and they can kind of carry on what they were doing at club and um, and that can then be fitted into the international schedule. As a practitioner working in men's football, you might look to the research for some guidance and we've all seen the figures of men, male athletes research versus female athlete research and obviously Stacey's on the call and doing a hell of a lot to, to balance that up. But where would you go, Jack, for you know the, the scientific rigour that you want to be underpinning your work if the research is not particularly strong in a in an area is there in the female game is there more of a community when it comes to sharing of information or is that maybe that's something that fifa are looking to as well i'm not I'm not quite sure but where would you go i think it's growing for sure i, I still don't think there's um like obviously there, there needs to be more research i think you could probably say that about any sport any male or female there can always be more research um i think uh, volume of high quality research and also volume of research in um, in genuinely elite environments is is lacking. But then also, um, the game's a young professional game. When I started in the game, uh, I was at a semi professional team. We were training two nights a week. Now it's obviously very much professional, but that's only been the last few years. So there's there's not going to be that volume of of research in in elite athletes. And obviously, people like Stacey are, are really improving that area. Um, Kirsty Elliott Sales, another one that I've spoken to, um, and we've spoken to at our club. Stacey mentioned some of the work that Dawn Scott did around the last World Cup um, and quantifying the physical demands. But my thoughts would be that if you repeated that after the World Cup this summer, those demands have probably gone up again. And I think if someone was doing that, uh, I know the FA are doing some work around the demands in the WSL at the moment, and again from from data collected internally i can definitely tell you definitively that the demands of the wsl have increased um so yeah i think i think the research always going to be catching up slightly um yeah so i think that's that's probably where, where we're at oh i'm just gonna add to that just through the research as well and and obviously just it's the same in the men's game we always you know we need to understand the top level and, and the elite level and, and that is the pinnacle of the game but I think just from a, a governing body and national association perspective there's got to be increased globally investment in the in the youth phase with with youth players youth female players because if we we talk about we need to you know increase the um exposure to younger players to to structured snc programs and, and everything else around it from a young age to develop that training age so when they reach that kind of elite level they, they have that better base I think there's a there's a need to also explore training strategies specific to more, you know, that population as well. So the, the, the investment, I think, in, in resource and research kind of needs to be at, at both ends of the spectrum if we're really going to kind of drive the, the women's game forward. Perfect. Thanks for that, Stace. Jackie, were you going to jump in then before I... Yeah, I was, I was going to touch on the, the research side of things because, like you said, it's, it's quite common knowledge that the research is lacking when it comes to... Um, uh, papers or journals that are specific to, to female players. Um, so one thing we do with Football Australia, we actually have a research and development department integrated within Football Australia across the board. So we will, this is head up by Rob Duffield and we will integrate PhD students 
as part of our staffing structure to conduct research. Um, so say if there is a question specific to the female gang that we want to find answers to, we can direct it to him and, and get those that that research done internally. Um, and we're hopeful that that project as well will slowly start to feed into that that global literature that's available um, with using athletes at the top of the game, really. So that's one method that we've done as a national team and adopted to try and benefit the sport. And it's playing dividends really for us because we get the answers firsthand. Um, so again, that could be specific to female athletes. It could be down to travel. Our national team travel more than anyone in the world. I think there was a report that came out recently with the, the most travelled female athletes uh, in in football at the moment, I think six of our players were in the top ten. Like we travel more than anyone else in the world, so um, it's important for us to have a, a good understanding, um, a, a good uh, sound research understanding of some of the questions that pop up for us. Yeah, I think I think just to add to to what Jack said there, that's kind of a similar model as we're trying to do with sort of the English FA at the moment in terms of um, have embedded PhD students that can then support practice in clubs, and I think we're trying to do with the, the research as well, which I think academics have a, a duty to do as well, is get away from it just being sort of the research papers that come out and then expecting practitioners to go away and kind of unpick that and, and understand what it means. So trying to feed that back, um, both through listening to the coaches in a women's game and where's the resource, or if the resource is lacking in having that sports science support, you know, how can we try and provide that a little bit remotely by developing dashboards to, um, interpret some of the GPS metrics or physical profiling data and then also then trying to feed it back in sort of webinars, infographs and those kind of things. So I think academia has also got a duty to kind of, I guess, you know, not be just driven by what are the questions that are, are interesting, but actually the questions that are the practitioners have and the people on the ground in practice and then ensuring that how that's disseminated back is sort of in an inappropriate uh, way that is going to help practitioners and and we get away from just, you know, publishing nice journal articles. <laughs> Perfect. Thanks, Dace. I uh, just want to remind people, if you've got any questions, pop it in the chat, pop it in the Q&A, and if you can, direct it at one particular individual. Um, we've got another eight or so minutes before we uh, dive into them, them questions. But one big one that, that Sharky mentioned before was the menstrual cycle tracking and phase-based training. Do you want to give us a little bit of um, an overview of where your thoughts are with that and potentially what you do with the national team? Yeah, of course, it seems to be a hot topic at the moment, um, phase-based training. Um, and for those that aren't really aware of what phase-based training, it's adjusting the training load and intensity based on the two main phases of the menstrual cycle, so the follicular phase and the luteal phase. Um, so the, there's research to suggest that certain physical qualities are heightened during a particular phase. So anaerobic capacity, for instance, or muscular strength are great during that follicular phase uh, compared to luteal. And it gives you suggestions that you could potentially do types of training in that first phase, um, such as strength training to get to maximize strength development or muscle mass growth. So that's the general principle of what phase-based training is. Um, but if I'm being honest, it's incredibly difficult to implement in a team environment. For, from my experience, it's it's nigh on impossible to implement within a team environment. It might be something in practice that you can do with an individual athlete. But when you're working with a squad of 23 plus players, all at various different stages of the cycle, um, there's too much amendment and, and 
there's so much detail that you need to go into actually to implement it that that time is probably best spent invested elsewhere. Um, because it's not just a case if you've got 23 players in your squad all at different stages of your cycle. Um, it, it's actually very hard to establish when those stages actually change uh, and when how those uh, stages, uh, parts of the cycle actually go from one to the other. Um, a lot of these players are on hormonal contraceptive as well, which will influence those phases and basically make phase-based training irrelevant. Um, you've also got a number of players who will have irregular cycles. So to actually apply phase-based training to someone with an irregular cycle is, again, very difficult to do and it won't really work. Um, so then if you've got a squad of, of athletes with regular cycles, irregular menstrual cycles on hormonal contraceptives, and going back to the hormonal contraceptives, each one of those is different as well. And we don't really have a true scientific understanding of how each one of those contraceptives influences performance or recovery either. It's so hard to then change team-based training around a, a group of players. So it, it kind of becomes impossible to implement, if I'm being perfectly honest. Like, that might be an unpopular opinion and people on this call might disagree, but I think it is very difficult to, to implement. Um, but that being said, with, with menstrual health and, and um, phase-based training, menstrual health is so important to, to have a grasp of, and that's where menstrual screening is, is going to play bigger dividends to, to, to your team and performance. Um, so when we talk about menstrual health, it's, it's an array of different conditions. So it could be um, endometriosis, uh, it could be uh, heavy menstrual bleeding, menorrhagia, um, extended menstrual cycles, uh, primary and secondary amenorrhea as well, uh, which is basically when you is the absence of menstruation. Um, having an understanding of these issues and trying to address them will be more pertinent to improving performance because these are generally correlated to things that will affect performance anyway. So for instance, with the national team, one of our main concerns is primary and secondary amenorrhea of, of athletes. And say if you are missing menstruation, that's typically linked to underfueling or low energy availability, which could be down to diet or um, eating disorders or stress. So to actually screen players around these uh, around menstrual health and having a proactive approach to address those issues is for me more important at this stage than doing phase-based uh, phase uh, training um, because there's too many athletes still who have uh, a poor menstrual health. So um, that's the way we have it with our approach. We have a, a screen that we developed in-house that we administer every six months to highlight and flag these players that we need to have follow-up meetings with. Um, and, and take more of a proactive approach there and creating a structure, a support structure around them that has sound nutritionists who across all this. We have uh, well-being officers, psychological support, uh, fantastic medical team as well. Um, and the education side of it as well, certainly with the younger athletes with our Future Matildas program is something we pride ourselves on as well um, because a big part of this initiative to try and drive uh, an improvement in, in how we we track and monitor menstrual health comes to having the player educate to understand what their normal is. Because like I said, there's so many different, uh, different issues and there's every player is different to their cycle. Only 50% of athletes, female athletes actually say that their menstrual cycle is influencing their performance. So, um, that education about understanding what is normal for themselves uh, and how they perform at different stages is, is for us more important than what's being pushed now with, with the narrative of phase-based training. Sorry, that's a long answer. No, 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 <laughs> Bosh great. together. Great stuff. <laughs> Jump in, Stace. Yeah, I was just wanted to basically just echo everything Jack said there. I think we've got, you know, we've kind of jumped too far ahead 
a little bit really so we know you know there isn't really enough high quality controlled well-designed research studies to actually you know be confident in saying phase-based training is appropriate um obviously there's a lot of you know good people out there trying to do some work in that area as jack touched upon earlier so kirstie elliott sale is kind of one who's kind of leading in that area but all the challenges just discussed there around even if that if that is appropriate the challenges of doing that in practice but i think it's the, it's the basics that that jack spoke about there that are really key at the moment in terms of education with players so i, I work with a group of players um this season uh who kind of uh there was still this belief that it was normal to, if they didn't have a normal menstrual cycle, it was a sign that actually they were, they were training hard. And that was some of the information that being told that it was normal if they, you know, they, did, they didn't have a normal menstrual cycle. Um, so I think there's still so much to do around the education of the players around that. Um, and then I think even if we can just can educate players and manage symptoms, and if some players you know, do struggle and they have symptoms that maybe have an impact upon their training, if we can manage those symptoms, which increases their availability to train, that is performance enhancing in its in itself. So I think we've just got to be careful. We we don't try and you know start saying we're going to do phase based training and all these things when we don't really yet have the evidence. And actually going back to basics and doing the basics well in this area is probably what's going to be the most performance enhancing effect. Perfect. Thanks, Dace. Right, we're in the last ten minutes and just on this topic, a question has come in. Uh, how is menstrual cycle monitoring right now in practice from a club and international level? So I ain't got your take on this, Jack. So we'll kill two birds with one stone and answer that question as well as get your input as well. Yeah, very, very little to add, really. I think I think the other two have, have put that really nicely, really explained it really well. Um, I completely agree with everything that's been said. Um, I think... From a club point of view, obviously, again, with the players every day, uh, the key thing for me is know your athletes. Um, and that doesn't just, just mean around menstrual cycle, but looking at that topic specifically, obviously, track menstrual cycle, um, know contraception use and be aware of that. Track symptoms um, in the same way as you'd, you'd track wellness and soreness and how a player uh, changes in profile for our week. Um, so know your athletes and then um, address the symptoms as they come up. Obviously, if you get um, if you can do that over a long enough period of time and with enough consistency, you might start to see repeated symptoms. Um, if I'm completely honest in my own practice and being in women's football a long time, there's only been a few cases probably where there's been enough consistency to really um, adjust training load. And the majority of that has been gym based. Um, and even then there was there was times when that was inconsistent and inappropriate. Um, I certainly don't don't think there's a kind of one size fits all phase based approach for for all the reasons that have been outlined previously. Um, there's there's loads of good ways now to track menstrual cycle. There's loads of apps. You can obviously just use really simple methods. Um, but yeah, just just ask the right questions. Speak to your athletes make sure that they're kind of comf confident and uh, comfortable with you to um, tell you about their symptoms and make sure there's someone they can speak to about their symptoms. Um, and that's it for me. Cool. Thanks, mate. Right. Dive into the questions. We'll go reverse order. So maybe a competitor here, Sharky. Um, do you insist on girls doing strength training prescribed by you or they continue the club's program when in camp? 
No. So, um, in short answer. Um, so, but for me, it, it's very important that you have continuity in what they're doing in strength work in the club land when they come into the national team environment. Um, it's I've seen it in in certain environments where they will prescribe new programs for them when they come into camp, and that just makes no sense whatsoever. They shouldn't be starting a new exercise or program for the ten days that with you because you're just going to it's going to be so detrimental to performance and probably a big injury risk. Um, so that's where the communication with clubs is so important. We want to keep continuity of what they're doing in in their clubland as when they come into the national team, um, and we will just try and facilitate as best we can while while they're with us. Um, obviously it may differ depending on where we are in the world we could be in Timbuktu with no no gym equipment so we'll have to adapt accordingly but um, no uh, I think it's very important your continu- continuity of what they're doing in clubland Cool So continuing the theme in, in reverse order flywheel training with women I'm guessing that's the same as flywheel training with men Stace Is that right? Yeah, yeah, I think as we said before, yeah, no differences. Obviously, maybe their actual, I guess, coming back down to kind of what are their, what's their training age and what are they doing. It's probably you know awareness of where it's appropriate to introduce it and use it. But that will be the same, you know, if you're working with a male player, is evaluating, you know, where are they at in terms of their physical capabilities, their training age, and what are they doing. But as, as long as you apply those principles and and don't just randomly sort of introduce it, and you've got high volumes in there and those types of things, then the gender of the athlete really is, is not going to influence the training. Cool. Easy one. Um, I'll go to the top. I think that's the same guy that asked the question on uh, for you, Jack. Endurance test. We'll just do like a just personal preference. I, w- I would assume 30-15 versus yo-yo. Jackie? Neither? Um, Both? Neither? If, I, if, I'm brute, if I'm being brutally honest, I've not I've not really done too much of the 3015. Okay. Um, uh, a lot of my work has been the yo-yo. I actually do prefer um, if we're going to look at aerobic capacity, doing a 1.5k mass run during the early stages of say a, a long pre-camp or a pre-season, and then using that as your reference point for a lot of the conditioning that you prescribe to players after. Um, so and, and, and without going into too much detail, like the grid runs, the maximum aerobic speed runs, um, using that as a benchmark of, of developing those conditioning runs even the 1k runs early on in pre-season as well um that's why i like the 1.5 because it gives you something objective to actually then go and something tangible to actually use to implement on the training field as well jack what have you got planned for a couple months uh, we we don't currently use either use yo-yo in the past um similar to sharky we use um mas tests um i've used a couple of different ones over the years um I think typically for kind of aerobic capacity, the longer the test, the, the longer the distance, the better. Um, I really like that because it's it's very programmable. Um, you can use max aerobic speed and anaerobic speed reserve to to program quite easily. So um, so we'll do that actually in our off season programs now because we have quite a big chunk of time. Our non internationals have quite a big chunk of time off, so we'll program using MAS um, and then we'll we'll test that when they come in and we'll we'll plan conditioning for their pre-season based on that. Sharky, were you going to jump in then? No, no I just left my mic on, so I'll okay. turn it off. <laughs> <laughs> no worries, no worries. Right, I think we've got maybe time for one or two more. Stace, I'm going to come to you on this one. Um, any information at the moment around menstrual cycle and a link to increase in risk of ACL injury phase potential? Don't know. 
Yeah, I think everything, you know, we spoke about before, all those different factors that play into kind of causal factors. It's really hard with any injuries to determine one cause and effect. Um, there's obviously theories around certain things may be a risk factor, but I, I, we're definitely not at a point where we can say this particular phase, you're more at risk of a, an ACL injury. It's, it's far more complex than that. Cool. Uh, and last but not least, <clears throat> the second one down, so we've got that one. Um, and I'll leave it open. It's dangerous when I leave it open because no one says anything. But um, with the demands going up and the velocity bands, is there any risk of that the, the demands going higher than the bands that have been set because the everything's increasing? Does that make sense? Oh God. No, anyone? Jack, Sharky, Stacy. I was just gonna say yes, there is. Okay, <laughs> okay. How do we mitigate against that? Or are you just we're catching up with the, the thresholds that have been set, we're catching up with demands all the time? Yeah, I think you could probably I think the 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 growth of the women's game because it's because it's nearly professional i know i've said this before but um i think the the demands are still increasing at quite a high rate i would say i don't know if the others would agree with me um and i think that'll continue for for a number of years so i think there's definitely a risk of that uh, which is kind of why we've gone with the approach we've gone which is set a absolute threshold and then um compare each player to themselves essentially um rather than comparing to some kind of average of, of women's players or, or some kind of physical demand data. Um, so that, that's just how we do it. And I think um, potentially down the line, there might be a, a kind of clearer way of, of setting those, those thresholds, um, but I don't think we're quite there yet. Shaki, did you leave your mic on again? Or are we going to jump in? Yeah, no, that wasn't a mistake this time. <laughs> um, yeah, just going back to the original point about how with the men's team, you've got those standardised thresholds that are pretty much like done as gospel anyway and whereas the women's have not got anything concrete across the board yet I think that's a positive I think that's a, a massive positive that we can actually create reasoning rationale behind what we use moving forward um, whatever that may be whether it's based off the average mass of the, the league or whether it's more biomechanical um, of course if you look at the men's thresholds which everyone just adopts through just following it because everyone else does um, they were just set by the tracking companies years and years ago that's why it's there. It's got no scientific rhyme reason. It was just a tracking company went, right, we'll do that for, for some reason. And then every tracking company after that have kept it standardised because that's the threshold that everyone else has used. So just because they've got those thresholds mean that's what we should use at all. Um, so it's quite nice that we've got that, that opportunity to sit down and, and work collaboratively and collectively, maybe get together and say, right, what, how do we do this moving forward? So we've got some scientific rationale behind what we're actually doing with the data perfect and finished oh go on stace go on i was just gonna just briefly just yeah just say to that i think that's kind of from a research perspective as well kind of where we sit in the women's game like yes there's a lot of good work being done in, in men's football and a lot that we can learn from that in terms of methods and study designs and those kind of things but there's also an opportunity to actually evaluate like whether some of that is appropriate for the women's game, but also learn from some of the mistakes that have been done in the men's game. So I think that, you know, that that's a real kind of unique and, and great, exciting opportunity to kind of do what's right moving forward. Good place to finish, I think. And absolutely, well, one minute over. So you forgive me for that. But um, thank you very much, Stace, Jack and Sharky for jumping on, giving up an hour of your time. I really appreciate it. and the, the you know, people that have, that have stuck around and asked the questions. 
really appreciate those as well. So I'll keep in touch with all three of you. Really appreciate it. And um, yeah, have a good rest of the evening. Thanks for tuning in to episode 463 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode with Stacey, Jack and Jack. And hopefully it gives you a real insight into what it's like working in women's football and how you can enhance your practice when working in this sport. So big thanks to Team Builder, to Hawking Dynamics and to Rock Daisy for sponsoring this episode today. The podcast could not run its current form without these guys, so I really do appreciate all their support. Big thanks to you for tuning in and look forward to chatting to you next time.